Let's start with a quick show of hands. Just wonder how many of you have seen the movie Titanic? Oh, a lot of people have. It was the highest grossing movie of all time when it came out. And um, if you haven't, I'm sorry if I give it away, but you probably know that the boat sank. But um, but the very end of the movie, the conclusion, the climax, uh, the main character, Rose, it's many, many years later after the events of the Titanic, and she's an older woman now, and she's just relived and and thought back on everything that happened there, and it's, it's very emotional, it's a very, very poignant moment, and the Celine Dion music starts to, starts to click in, and, and she utters these words that are so heartfelt, and yet so ridiculous. <laughs> there was a man named Jack Dawson, and he saved me in every way that a person can be saved. Really? Every way a person can be saved. And you knew the guy for a few days, a torrid love affair on a cruise ship, and then he, then he drowned and left you traumatized and, and heartbroken and confused and questioning everything, and all by yourself to pick up the broken pieces of your life. Now, forgive me if I sound unromantic, but if that's what it means to be saved, I think I'll pass. But I was thinking about that scene this week. I, we're in this sermon series at The Journey called, um, what is it called? Long story short. I've never preached twice in a row before, so. Um, long story short, the story of the Bible in six acts. We looked at part one, act one, creation, where God made everything and made us, and it was all very good. We looked at act two, chaos, where we chose to reject God's leadership and rule in our lives, and everything was kind of unraveled from there. We looked at Act 3 last week, Covenant, where God began to to move to make right what sin and chaos had had made wrong. And he made all sorts of great promises to people for a restoration that he would bring. And now we come to Act 4, Christ. I thought, how do we make a long story short when it comes to Christ? As a church, we spent over 30 weeks this past year just looking at one sermon that Jesus preached. And we still didn't exhaust it, let alone the rest of his life. But in thinking, how would I make a long story short when it comes to Christ, I might say this, that there was a man named Jesus Christ who lived 2,000 years ago. He was God himself come to us, and he came to save us in every way that people can be saved. That he came to save And in every way that we need saving. In the spirit of long story short this morning, we're just going to dive into two verses from the Bible. There's tons more we could look at, but I think these two do a lot of justice to who Jesus is and what it, how it is exactly that we need saving and what it is he did about it. So if you'll turn with me, we're going to go to the very beginning of the New Testament. We just went through the Old Testament in three weeks. So now we are here in Matthew chapter 1. So we open to Matthew 1. We're going to look at this opening verse, which is something we may be tempted to just gloss over, but we're going to really dive in today. Matthew 1, 1. It says, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I think the gospel writer Matthew would have made a very good newspaper reporter in his day, because one of the cardinal rules for journalism is what they call don't bury the lead, 
which is to say, if you've got something important to say, whatever your main point is you, that people need to get, say it right away, right in the first sentence, the first paragraph, because otherwise the average reader might not read any further. So don't bury your main point. Say it right away. Now, Matthew was not a journalist, and his gospel is not a newspaper story, but for his, re- his audience, his readers, who have been first century people of primarily Jewish background, if all they read was just this first sentence, they would have already been confronted with some astounding claims and some serious truth about who Jesus is. So we'll pick it apart one bit at a time. It begins, a record of the genealogy of. Other translations might say something like, this is the account of, or something like that. Whatever it is, it's really a two-word phrase in Greek, in the original Greek, biblos geneseos, which sounds a little bit like, what's that sound familiar? What does that sound like? Genesis? I heard Genesis. Yes, that's what I'm looking for. Genesis. And, and Matthew's readers would have picked up on that. It would have taken them back to Genesis. Because this exact same two-word phrase is in their, the Greek version of the Old Testament that they would have read in this verse that we, we would translate this way. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When God, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. It's actually the exact same two words that begin this. And this verse here is the beginning of the biblical narrative. We learned a couple weeks ago, Pastor Tom taught us, the creation account beforehand is not actually in narrative form. The biblical narrative begins here. And Matthew's New Testament narrative begins with the exact same phrase. And that's not a coincidence. It underscores a few things. One, that, like we've been saying, all of Scripture is really one story from beginning to end. And this moment here is not just any old moment in the story, not just any old run-of-the-mill event along the way, but this moment here actually represents a new beginning. Coming of Christ is a whole new beginning, a whole new start, a whole new genesis, you could say. And this speaks to one way in which we really need to be saved. So it's not that we just need a little improvement or a little fixing up, a little cosmetic uh, addition. We, we don't need just to, to hear from another great teacher of more great moral lessons for how to live better. We actually need a complete restart. That's the level of the depravity of our human condition that sin set into motion. We need to actually be made completely new and have a new beginning altogether. That is part of what it means for us to need to be saved. Then Matthew moves on. It's the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now you might think, well, duh, of course the story is about Jesus Christ. But this is not just simply naming the main character of, of the story. Uh, Jesus is his name. We'll get to that later. But Christ is actually a title. It's not Jesus' last name. It's a title. Some of your Bibles might say Jesus the Messiah, which really captures this. The Messiah is the Hebrew word, Christ is the Greek word, but Matthew is not just saying this is Jesus Christ, his name. He's saying Jesus is the Christ. He's making a pronouncement. He's making an announcement. He's making a huge claim about who Jesus is. Jesus Christ then was not just a name, but it was an early profession of faith. That Jesus is the Christ. Last week we looked at the huge promises that God made to his people 
for how he would make right what sin had set into chaos. And central to those promises of this coming one, this anointed leader, this Messiah, this Christ, who will fulfill all of God's good promises. And Matthew is saying here, he's the one. Jesus is it. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. And he unpacks that a little bit more. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. This was a loaded statement for Matthew's audience. The son of David. About a thousand years before Jesus, God promised King David that one day he would raise up for him a descendant, a son. And God would establish his throne and his kingdom and rule would last forever and be without end. And so we see most of David's descendants in the Old Testament are actually a bunch of total screw-ups, and they are clearly not it. They're not the one. And so the people continue to wait, and they continue to hope, and their expectations build, and the prophets of the Old Testament continue to promise this king, there is a a son of David, a descendant of David coming, the ruler that we all so desperately need and are longing for to set things right under his rule. And the promises are beautiful that the prophets made. We're going to look at just one, and we already kind of sang about this from Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. By the time of Jesus, people had been waiting a long, long time for this king, for this kind of ruler, desperately hoping and waiting. And so for Matthew to call Jesus the son of David, this is not just like a a cool, fun fact that you might find on Ancestry.com, tracing a lineage, like, oh, cool, David's related to Jesus. That's neat. But... This is a major pronouncement. Jesus is the son of David. He's the one that we've all been waiting for, the ruler and the king. We've been expecting that God has promised to set things right. Jesus comes as a king. And this also speaks to how it is we need to be saved. This is so un-American of me to say, but we really actually need a king and a ruler in authority over our lives. This kind, the kind that we, that we read and sang about. Jesus, he comes as a king. If you remember earlier in our story, we saw that when God first made everything, it was in a state of perfect shalom, perfect goodness, perfect wholeness. And the point at which that shalom began to unravel and fall apart was the very point where human beings decided, we don't want to be under God's authority anymore. And they've rebelled against his rule and his leadership and decided we'd rather run things ourselves and be the rulers of our own lives. And so for the way for shalom to be restored is for our lives and everything else to be brought back under the rightful authority of God. We've tried to be God and, and tried to run our lives and tried to run the world. And we've screwed things up at an incomprehensible level. And we need a king, we need a ruler to set things right, to bring things back under the authority of God where they were meant to be, where we were made to be. Jesus is that king, the son of David. 
And Matthew's audience might have heard Son of David in that time and thought, oh, cool, a king for us, for Israel, right? He's going to be like our, our national king and make our nation great and, and destroy all the other nations. But he's not just the king of David, or the son of David. Jesus is also the son of Abraham. Last week, we looked at the promises God made to Abraham, and at the core of them is this one. Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. All nations on earth. And Jesus, again, is that son, that offspring of Abraham, who's going to bring the full blessing and promises of God to people from every nation and every culture. He is not just a local God or some tribal deity that's contained to just one kind of people group or one nation. He is for all nations and brings people from all walks of life who will trust in him into one people, one family of God. Here at The Journey, we really aspire to be a church that's intergenerational, that's ethnically and culturally diverse, and diverse across socioeconomic lines. And that is not just to be PC or nice, but really it's a demonstration of the character of Jesus who brings people from every nation, every culture, and every walk of life together into one people, into one family. It demonstrates who he is and what he's about. Jesus is that son of Abraham who does that. He didn't come to just save one nation from its political enemies, but he came to save people from every nation from our greatest enemy, the one true enemy that we all have, no matter who we are, where or when we live. Which leads us into the second scripture we're going to look at this morning. Also from Matthew 1. We'll jump down a little bit. So Matthew 1, verse 21, and this is where Joseph has discovered is that Mary is pregnant with the Son of God, and he gets instructions here. That she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So names are super important in the Bible. They're they're profound, they have meaning, they're tied to a person's core identity and who they are. And now, God's son is about to be born into the world, and he needs a name. What do you name him? It could, could be anything, right? Well, this is the name that God chose. Jesus. Greek form of the name Joshua, or Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. That's core to who he is. And people think all kinds of things and they think of who Jesus is and what he's about. But if there is one thing, just one thing he wants to be known for above all things, it is this, that he saves. He came to save. And he came to save his people. And we just saw his people are not limited to any one people group, but can be people from any nation and any culture and any walk of life. And he saves his people from their sins. The one common true enemy above all. This is really, this is our fundamental issue that needs addressing, our fundamental problem, fundamental thing we need saving from is sin. And Jesus came to again borrow the line to save us from sin in every way that people can possibly be saved from sin. And we're going to look at three ways 
this morning, Jesus saves us from sin. One, so he saves us from the guilt of sin. This may be jumping ahead in our story a little bit, but at some point, God is going to come and judge the world and all of us who live in it. And Psalm 130 says, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? Who could stand? It's a rhetorical question, but the obvious answer is nobody. No one could stand. If God, who knows not just everything we do or don't do, but every thought and motivation and inclination in our heart, kept a record of our sins and then measured that record against his standard of perfect shalom, perfect goodness and justice and righteousness, it doesn't matter who you are, how much good you've done, the verdict for all of us is guilty by a landslide. None of us can stand in this way. And apart from Jesus, we're left on our own to try to stand, to try to defend our record. And none of us will be able to stand. But there was a man named Jesus Christ who actually had no record of sins, who was not guilty of anything in any way, lived a perfect and blameless life, and yet he stood in the position of the guilty, stood in our place and took the position of the guilty of those with a record of sins. And he took the consequences for our guilt as well. We'll look real quick at an image we get of Jesus the night before he was crucified. And I don't know if you've ever wondered, I know a lot of people wonder, like, isn't there any other way? Can you really, is there really just one way to be right with God? Can't, aren't there many ways? And you know, take heart. Jesus actually asked that same question, you could say, right here. He said, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. So the answer is no, but it's like Jesus just had to ask one last time. Like, father, okay, if there is any other way that this can go down, any other way we can do this, now would be the time, but, but there isn't. And Jesus stands in the place of guilty ones, and he takes the consequences, and they're truly horrifying. He uses this language of a, of a cup, which is a loaded term from the Old Testament, the cup of God's wrath, his full wrath against wickedness and evil poured out. And Jesus drinks that cup. Anywhere in the Bible we see God's wrath. It is truly horrifying. It sounds harsh, but I will say this, that if there was no wrath of God, it would mean either he didn't care very much about evil in the world and didn't want to do anything about it, or maybe he'd like to, but he has really nothing at his disposal to to do anything about it. But he does care about evil, much more even than we do, and he does have what it takes to do something about it. And his wrath is poured out, but here Jesus drinks the cup. Jesus, who was completely innocent, was sentenced and tried, punished, executed so that we could be free from the guilt of sin. He saves us from our guilt. But it doesn't end there. Jesus also saves us from the shame of our sin. Shame. Shame is not so much about our record about what we've done or haven't done. Shame is more just about who we are, kind of fundamentally who we are. We're, 
We're just the sense that we're, we're broken. We're not quite right. Shame is about that. And we saw when sin entered the picture a couple, in our series a couple weeks ago that shame came immediately. Before that, there was no shame. Adam and Eve had no shame before God, before one another. But then, all of a sudden, they're hiding from God. And they don't want him to see them. And they, and they hide from each other and they put together fig leaves to try to cover up their shame. That's what shame does. It affects us all. It makes us say, oh gosh, I, I can't face God like this. I, I can't talk to God. I can't be in God's presence. God can't see me like this. And neither can you. Don't, don't look at me. You can't see me like this. Or wait, let me at least cover myself up. Okay, now you can look. But don't look too hard. If you see past my exterior and my facade, my covering, it'll be ugly. And shame does that to us. And we spend unbelievable energy as human beings trying to hide, trying to cover our shame. But it's all just about as effective as fig leaves because none of us can really make our own shame go away. But there was a man named Jesus Christ who had no shame, no cause for shame. He was not broken in any way, nothing to be ashamed of before God, before others, completely pure and right and good. And he took the position of shame. He took the most shameful position for us, outcast and rejected, stripped, naked, and hung on a Roman cross like a criminal for all to see, the most shameful and low position there could be. Ridiculed and mocked, called names by people passing by, by the crowds. He took the most shameful position possible for us. Now, I'm speaking to Christians here, and myself included. A lot of us, I think, get the first part, that Jesus takes away the guilt of our sin as if some kind of transaction happens. He, he like, stamps our card or something paid in full. And then we, we kind of show our card at the door to enter into God's house. And he has to let us in because it's been paid in full. But once we're in the house, in the household of God, we still somehow feel like we don't belong. We still feel like damaged goods, like we're too broken. We, don't, we still want to hide from God. We still don't want God or others to see us for who we really are and what's really going on. Shame can still have a hold on us, but listen to me, guys. Jesus took the position of ultimate shame so that we no longer have to hide from God anymore. Ever again. You belong in God's house if you're his child. He knows you're there and he wants you there. Let's read this together from from 1 John. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. That is what we are. No shame. We can come before God. We don't have to hide from him. We can call him daddy. We can call him our dad. Bring all of who we are before him. We are his child. Now, I don't know what others see when they look at you, and I don't know what you see when you look in the mirror, 
But you need to know the truest thing of all is what God sees when he looks at you. And he sees his child whom he loves. So whatever other label you've been carrying around or you've worn, whether it's you're a sinner, you're no good, you're a loser, you're a failure, you're hopeless, you're a pervert, you're a criminal, you're a crook, you're a liar, you're a thief, you're damaged goods, you're a mistake, you're unwanted. Listen, none of those labels have any power over God's children anymore. Jesus took upon himself every bit of shame and every shameful label. He took them to the cross where they were put to death, and he is not giving them back. He took our badges of shame. He is not giving them back. Instead, he gives us the right to be called God's children and to come before him without shame. He saves us from the shame of sin. But we're still not done. He saves us not only from the guilt of sin and the shame of sin, but Jesus saves from the power of sin. A large part of the power of sin is the guilt and the shame that comes along with it. But there's also just the power sin has over us to get us to do what it wants. Even if we know the right thing to do, we still oftentimes just can't do it. Sin is kind of a master over the human race. We don't live in just a neutral world where we're free to just easily choose what is right. We actually live in a world that is in bondage and captivity to sin. Bondage and captivity to sin, and, need, and we need to be set free. Sin has infected every life, had its way in every life, in every family, and community, and city, and in every structure and institution and system that has ever existed on the face of the earth. Sin is powerful. And apart from Jesus, we are left on our own to try to combat sin by our own power, and it will always be a losing battle because we ourselves are captive and in bondage to sin. And we need a liberator. We need someone to set us free from the power of sin. And there was a man named Jesus Christ who went toe-to-toe with evil, took on sin, and entered into the combat with all that it had to offer, and he won. And sin and evil and the devil threw everything it had at Jesus and lost was tempted in every way, but did not sin. Evil spirits that had held people in captivity for years just cowered in his presence and fled at one word from his mouth. And then Jesus underwent the ultimate expression of the power of sin, death, when he was killed and put to death. But he rose up out of the grave And the ultimate act of victory over the ultimate expression of sin and evil's power. It had nothing left in the tank, and Jesus overcame. And so then we can say these words that the Apostle Paul said. Let's read this together. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus, there is victory over the power of sin. And there is an ultimate and final victory coming, which we'll get to in Acts 6. But in the meantime, our lives can be a demonstration of the power of Jesus to overcome the power of sin. 
He brings victories into our lives as sin loses its hold on us, as he dismantles the power of sin to get us to do what it wants and frees us to live as children of God. There are signs of victory every time Jesus works in a person's life. Anytime an addiction gets broken, anytime a grudge is forgiven, anytime a fearful person becomes courageous, anytime an anxious person begins to trust in God's promises, anytime someone with a porn habit loses their appetite for that junk, anytime a racist person begins to truly love those who are different from them, anytime a greedy person becomes generous and a selfish person becomes loving and sacrificial and kind, anytime a violent person becomes a peacemaker, anytime enemies become reconciled, anytime we stop believing the lies that we believe about ourselves and about God and they're replaced with truth. Anytime we begin to identify and name the idols that we worship for the worthless things that we are and give more and more of our worship to God who truly deserves it. And anytime we relinquish control and authority to run our own lives and surrender to the rightful rule and authority of Jesus. This is his victory over the power of sin in our lives. And he brings victory. Our lives are to be marked by victory over sin. Now, sometimes victories over sin are instantaneous and dramatic. Powerful interventions of God. Sometimes victory over sin is a very long and uneven journey filled with stops and starts and ups and downs and and ultimately, victory over sin completely is something that we, in many ways, are still waiting for, still hoping for, still trusting that God will bring an ultimate deliverance from the power and bondage of sin in our lives and in our world. But we can be confident in this victory. We are on the winning team, and another spoiler alert, the end is good, <laughs> and the victory is sure. So victory over sin takes all sorts of times. I've experienced all of these in my own life, and maybe some of you have too. Uh, when I first came to faith in Jesus, there were things in my life that instantaneously changed. Things I had a desire to do that I suddenly lost all desire to do, and people would, would look at me and be like, well, what happened to you? And since then, along the way, I can point to moments where God has powerfully come to work in my life and dismantled the power of sin in some way that it just had a hold on me, but then suddenly didn't anymore. And I know many of you have stories like that, of dramatic and sudden victories that Jesus has given over sin in your life. And all we can say is praise Jesus. He saves us from the power of sin. Other victories take a long time. They're a process Many of us are in process, and, and we can look back, though, kind of months ago, years ago, even decades ago, and suddenly marvel and realize that there are ways that sin had a grip on our lives that Jesus has broken off of us. And we can't even really explain how it would happen. We don't know exactly where, when, but all we can say, again, is praise Jesus, who saves us from the power of sin. And then there are things in our lives that serve as reminders that we're still waiting and still hoping and expecting an ultimate victory over sin. And when it comes, which it will, 
All again that we'll have to say is praise Jesus. He saves us from the power of sin. And he saves us from the shame of sin. And he saves us from the guilt of sin. He's the one who came to conquer our greatest and most profound enemy. He's the one who came to draw people from every nation, every culture, every people group into God's one family and to extend the blessings and promises of God to all kinds of people. He is the one who came as a king, as our rightful ruler, whose authority and rule we also desperately need to bring things back under the shalom reign of God. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of every promise, every hope and expectation that God's people have ever had. And he is the one, the new creator, the new creation, the new beginning who can make us all together new. So a long story short, there was a man named Jesus Christ. And there is a Lord and King and God named Jesus Christ who came to save and is here to save us in every way that people can possibly be saved. Amen. So why don't you stand on up? And we're at, we, it's time for me to stop talking and for us to just praise Jesus and worship him for all of who he is and all of what he's done. So we're going to do that in a minute. But before we do, I do want to give space. Um, if there are any of you here, and there were at the 9 o'clock, who, uh, you, you, this story of God's saving, of Jesus saving, sounds like a great story, but it has not yet become your story. Today could be the day that becomes your story where you could say that Jesus has saved me and you could welcome him into your life as the rightful king and savior, the one who will cover your guilt, cover your shame, bring his power into your life to dismantle the power of sin and make you new. You could have a new beginning altogether. All you'd have to say is, Lord, I know I'm guilty. I have a record of sins like everyone else, but I trust that Jesus has paid for it and taken the punishment. Lord, I know that I'm not really worthy or right to come before you and be in your presence, but I know that Jesus has taken my shame away so I can call you my Father, and I want to call you my Father today. Lord, I know that sin has had its way with me and in my life, but I want to welcome the power of Jesus to dismantle the power of sin in my life, and I simply just want a new beginning. So if that's you, maybe you've heard that story before, maybe you haven't, but you want it to be your story and you want to just say yes to Jesus and his saving work in your life, I ask you to just raise your hand. I'll pray for you. Yes, praise God. Thank you, God. Yes, all right. Yes, you are. You, he's done all the heavy lifting and this is all you need to do. So Lord, I do pray for my new brothers and sisters here who are saying yes to you, And I declare that you have paid for their record. You have covered their shame and they are free to come before you as your children to call you Father. And I pray that your power would begin to overcome and dismantle and break the power of sin in their lives. You would give them a journey filled with victory that ends in ultimate victory. And we submit together to your rightful leadership and lordship and kingship in our lives. We call you Lord, Savior, Father, 
and King. You're all this and more, and we praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen.